Saturday morning, June 17, 1933, Union Station, Kansas City, Missouri. Notorious bank robber Frank Nash, on the run after escaping from Leavenworth Federal Prison, is nabbed in Hot Springs, Arkansas, by two FBI agents and the McAllister, Oklahoma, police chief. After arriving at Union Station in Kansas City, Missouri, the four disembark from the train to make the dangerous journey by car up to Leavenworth, Kansas. Two more FBI agents and two Kansas City, Missouri police officers form a phalanx around the prisoner. Armed with two shotguns and pistols, they march through the station to the parking lot. As they watchfully load up the car, two men with machine guns shout for everyone to put their hands up. A 30-second hell breaks loose. When the gun smoke settles, five men are dead. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Before we get started... I would like to talk about something besides murder for just a minute or two. Recently, there's been a plagiarism scandal in the true crime podcast world. A very popular podcast, Crime Junkie, is accused, and rightfully so, of using material, sometimes word for word, from reporters and other podcasts without crediting the sources. If you want more detailed information, I recommend a recent podcast episode about it by some of the podcasters who got ripped off. That podcast is called, oh, warning, cutesy pun coming up, Let's Taco 
about true crime. Yes, T-A-C-O. Let's Taco About True Crime is hosted by Esther Ludlow. She's also the host of Once Upon a Crime, which is a very good podcast. In the podcast episode, Esther and Robin Warder, who host The Trail Went Cold, and Stephen Pacheco, who does Trace Evidence, by the way, two more podcasts on my favorites list, talk about what happened and why the Crime Junkie hosts deserve to be called out. Anyway, if you're interested, give that a listen. When I first started Prison City Murders, I worried about plagiarism a little bit. Since I was a teenager, which is a long time ago, I have read true crime books and watched true crime shows on TV. And the past few years, listened to true crime podcasts. So a lot of what I say is not especially original. And when I talk about real-life crime, there is a particular set of facts, and there's only so many ways to say what happened. What I try to do is treat sources like footnotes on a college term paper um, without all the APA formatting stuff. My sources are usually just links. Basically, when I find something, I stick the link down at the bottom of the script, and then the links go in the show notes and on the blog. Now, when I use a book or an article a lot to write a podcast, I give a shout out to the author or the paper. But to be practical, if I start trying to find every single source and put them all out there in great detail, the show notes will be 20 pages long and I'll never get another podcast done. So please know I'm doing my best to give credit where credit is due. At the end of the show, I'll go through a little more about how I produce this podcast so you get a good idea where what you hear on Prison City Murders comes from. So before I forget, I used one book extensively to produce this episode. The book is The Union Station Massacre. I ordered it from Amazon. The book is subtitled The Original Sin of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, which gives you a good clue that it's not a fluff piece on the FBI. The author is Jeffrey Unger, U-N-G-E-R, a retired reporter for the Kansas City Star. This book should be the model for all true crime books, thoroughly researched and flawlessly written. I wanted to get this book because Wikipedia, oh, another source I use a lot, said that Unger disputes the official FBI account of what happened. I was afraid it might be one of those police bashing, cover-up conspiracy type books, but not at all. 
It's so far above anything like that. Besides writing a narrative that's hard to put down once you start reading it, Unger presents interesting opinions and arguments and conjectures that are backed up with facts and logic. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Frank Nash is born February 6th, 1887 in Indiana to John and Alta Nash. Frank, whose nickname is Jelly, is the youngest of six children. And a little genealogy on the family. In 1910, the family is out in Oklahoma, where it looks like John runs a hotel. Judging from where they're all buried, most of the family ends up near Paragould, Arkansas. That's in the northeast part of Arkansas, near Mississippi and Missouri. Kind of the southern foothills of the Ozark Mountains. John also sets up hotels in Arkansas, and Frank sometimes works for him. In his late teens, Frank serves in the Army. Unfortunately, Frank is definitely the black sheep of the family, with his first conviction for robbery coming in 1913, when he is 26, and it's an ugly crime. He shoots his accomplice in the back in cold blood while they are hiding the money from the robbery of a store near Tulsa, Oklahoma. Nash gets a life sentence, but persuades the warden of the Oklahoma State Prison to let him out to serve in World War I. He gets shipped off to France and sees action there. In 1918, he's a free man who lives out his life as an honorable citizen. No, he doesn't do that. He's soon up to his old ways and back at Oklahoma State Prison in McAllister, Oklahoma, after being convicted of a robbery in which he blew up a safe. Again, he behaves well in prison and gets out early. But he soon starts robbing banks and trains again with other outlaws. This time, when he gets caught, he gets a long, long sentence and goes to the big house, Leavenworth Federal Prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. Again, he does well in prison, and after five or six years, he actually becomes the warden T.B. White's personal servant. The famous Leavenworth Prison is right next to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to the south and the west of the post. Nowadays, the warden's house is out in front of the prison, and so I think it's the same one we're talking about. It's not far from Metropolitan Avenue, a main road in the city of Leavenworth, Kansas. On the evening of October 20th, 1930, to Warden White's great surprise, but not to mine, Frank walks away from the warden's house and never comes back. 
Nash makes his getaway to Joplin, Missouri, in the southwestern foothills of the Ozarks, where he stays with an old friend for a while, presenting the man's wife with a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, which she is very proud of, not knowing that he stole this favorite book from the prison library and took it with him when he escaped. He wanders for a bit after that, hiding out with other associates all over the place. The next year, Frank Jelly Nash masterminds the escape of a bunch of his fellow outlaws from Kansas State Prison in Lansing, Kansas, which is just south of the city of Leavenworth. On Memorial Day, that's in May, 1933, a baseball game between two local American Legion teams is being played at the prison's baseball field. Inmates and townspeople are cheering the teams on the holiday. While all this is happening, several inmates, including notorious killers and outlaws, meet up under the bleachers. The group is led by Harvey Bailey, a smart, respected, older convict. They are heavily armed with guns that Nash has managed to smuggle into them. They take the warden, Kirk Prather, who is one day from retirement, and a couple of guards hostage, and they begin moving toward a waiting car. Things don't go as smoothly as planned. The crowd catches on to what's happening. Some other convicts take off too, and bystanders with guns get involved. However, pretty soon the group gets away without anybody getting killed. They head toward Oklahoma with their hostages. They let the hostages go as soon as they get out of Kansas. From there, they split up, and over time, they will all be captured or killed. After helping with the escape, Frank Jelly Nash finally ends up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, a resort town in the middle of Arkansas, famed for its hot springs and being the site of Major League Baseball spring training. Babe Ruth made baseball history in Hot Springs by hitting a record home run in a game. This feat precipitated his ultimate change from good baseball pitcher to legendary home run slugger. The length Babe hit the ball couldn't be accurately measured because the ball went way over the baseball field fence and all the way to the middle of an alligator pond. Besides being a tourist attraction, Hot Springs is also a protected area for outlaws. In fact, many areas of Arkansas and Missouri are known hangouts for outlaws. Most local lawmen are paid off or at least turn a blind eye to the outlaws' vacations, as long as they behave while they're in town. 
part of this is no doubt fear and part of it is that some outlaws are almost folk heroes, modern day Robin Hoods like Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger and Machine Gun Kelly. In Hot Springs, the whole government is corrupt and paid off to keep visitors to Hot Springs safe from the long arm of the law. So, in 1933, Frank Nash, who is 46 years old, has settled down comfortably in Hot Springs with his pretty younger wife, Frances, and her little daughter, Danella. Frances is an interesting character in her own right. She comes from a respectable family. She's a former school teacher from Chicago and ex-wife of a policeman. Reportedly, her husband left her for her sister, and she had someone shoot him. When Frances meets Nash, she is 35 and working as a cook and barmaid at a nightclub. They fall in love and marry, um, air quotes, because Frank is already married. On newspapers.com, I found some really entertaining tabloid-type stories about outlaws and their gun malls, like Jelly Nash and Francis, and what it was like for them to be on the run. One story was in um, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and the story in the Daily Oklahoman is entitled, titled Golfing Murderers. It sounds like these networks of outlaws would do robberies and then hide out with their girlfriends and wives, mostly hiding in plain sight and enjoying themselves. Then when they had to, because they ran out of money, they'd go commit new crimes. In the roaring 20s and 30s, society in the United States goes through major upheavals, in the Roaring Twenties, there's an attitude of sky's limit, high times. Paradoxically, this is also the Prohibition era when the U.S. tries and fails miserably to prohibit the sale and use of alcohol. This results in a wave of organized crime. In 1929, the bottom falls out of the economy and the Depression sinks into the nation. In the Midwest, the big story in the 30s is crushing poverty, folks losing their farms, and outlaw gangs. For the most part, in Kansas and Oklahoma, there aren't organized crime, crime mobs like um, Al Capone's mob in Chicago, but the outlaws do work together in loose, shifting alliances. The Bonnie and Clyde gang is a good example. These outlaws terrorize the Midwest, especially in the 30s, and law enforcement is pretty much powerless to stop them. The FBI isn't even officially called the Federal Bureau of Investigation until 1935. Listeners, I'll keep calling it the FBI because that's how we all know it. In 
the 1910s, the Bureau is just a minor part of the U.S. Department of Justice. They do have the mission of enforcing the Mann Act, that's M-A-N-N, named after a U.S. congressman. It's also called the White Slavery Act. The Mann Act made taking females across state lines for prostitution a serious federal crime. The Bureau also gets involved in tracking subversion and espionage. Then in 1920, there's a prohibition on the use and sale of alcohol in the U.S., and the Prohibition era begins. The FBI takes the lead on enforcing prohibition, too. In 1924, J. Edgar Hoover becomes the director of the FBI. Young J. Edgar wants to be a very powerful man, but he is not. He is stifled as merely the director of a relatively insignificant part of the DOJ. However, he makes the most of his few powers, which include the ability to do wiretapping, of which history will show he took excessive and illegal advantage. In 1933, Hoover craves the ability to go after outlaws like Frank Nash and Machine Gun Kelly and Pretty Boy Floyd. Unfortunately for Hoover, this mission is under the jurisdiction of local and state law enforcement. In fact, Hoover's agents aren't even considered law enforcement officers, just investigators working under federal prosecutors. Officially, in 1933, Hoover's agents can't arrest people, and they can't carry guns. As we will see, this won't stop the FBI from doing those things. In Hoover's favor is the obvious inability of the nation's patchy network of law enforcement agencies to deal with the scourge of bank and train robberies and other types of organized crime. Many states don't have a state police force of any kind. Law enforcement is strictly local and county level. The Texas Rangers have been around since 1823, but there aren't many counterparts to them in other states, so outlaws are running rampant all over the place. The idea of a national police force, which would seem to be the answer to the problem, is anathema to freedom-loving Americans. But this lawlessness will lead to the de facto formation of one, the FBI as we know it, albeit a heavily restricted one, at least on paper. In June 1933, a tip comes in to the Oklahoma City office of the FBI, revealing the whereabouts of one Frank Jelly Nash. Agents Francis Joseph Lackey, called Joe, 
and Frank Smith call Otto Reed, the police chief of McAllister, Oklahoma, who despises Nash. Reed jumps at the chance to go with them to capture Nash and put him back in prison. None of the three has the authority to take Nash into custody in Arkansas, but they doubt anyone will cause trouble once they get Nash safely back to Leavenworth, where he belongs. The three get to Hot Springs, Arkansas, early in the morning on Friday, June 16, 1933. That morning, Frank Nash kisses Francis goodbye and goes off to his favorite joint for a game of pool and some socializing. The agents and the police chief hustle him off to their car and speed out of Hot Springs, essentially kidnapping the outlaw. This doesn't go unnoticed by the local cops, who are furious and start calling all over Arkansas to other cops and sheriffs, urging them to stop Lackey, Smith, and Reed. Along the way, Nash is cooperative and chatty. The other three are exhausted and edgy, but they make it up north as far as Fort Smith, Arkansas, near the Oklahoma border by that evening without too much trouble. Lackey and Smith call back to their boss in Oklahoma City, who advises them to take the train up to Kansas City, Missouri, an overnight trip. The train is leaving at 8.30 p.m. A major problem is that there is an hour layover in Kansas City before the train takes off for Leavenworth. They decide that the best course of action is to arrange for a car and an armed escort to meet them at the station and then immediately drive up to Leavenworth. Listeners, this isn't what I would have done, but I wasn't there. So, to me, it seems much riskier to get off the train and drive up to Leavenworth. Even nowadays, that's at least a 45-minute drive to get from Union Station up to Leavenworth Federal Prison. A good part of that drive is through totally isolated areas where you could easily set up an ambush. I think it would be easier to sit on the train and arrange for a heavy guard at Union Station for the hour they have to wait. At any rate, that's not what they did, and that's why we have a story. Reed Vetterly is the 29-year-old special agent in charge at the Kansas City FBI office. He receives the call to make the security arrangements in Kansas City. He calls one of his agents. However, fortunately, as it turns out for that agent, Ken McIntyre, he missed the call. Years later, McIntyre will express some guilt over that, saying he was too cheap to get his own phone. It was the Depression, after all. So he had left the FBI office his neighbor's phone number. By the time he got to his neighbor's phone, Vetterly had hung up. Fatefully, Agent Raymond Caffrey answered his phone. 
Federally also calls the Kansas City Police Department and arranges for the two officers in charge of the department's riot car and armored vehicle equipped with machine guns called the Hotshot to help with security arrangements at Union Station. One of the officers is Frank Hermanson, age 45. I found a few records for him in Kansas City. He's been on the police force for at least 10 years by this time, and he has a wife and grown son. There's not too much information on the other officer, William J. Red Grooms. The most recent record I could find was the city directory from 1932, which shows him living in Kansas City with his wife Myrtle. The directory says he works as a bookkeeper for the Kansas City Gas Company, which made me wonder how much police experience he had. However, Unger describes both Grooms and Hermanson as veteran police officers. Back at the Fort Smith, Arkansas train station, Agent Smith and Lackey, Chief Reed, and their prisoner, Frank Jelly Nash, understandably attract the attention of an enterprising Associated Press reporter. Chief Reed is carrying his own special 16-gauge sawed-off shotgun, and Lackey has a 12-gauge shotgun. Smith has two pistols. Jeffrey Unger details what happens in Fort Smith. This part of the book is especially vivid because he's writing as a reporter himself. The upshot is that not long after our group gets to the train station in Fort Smith, the story of the capture of Nash and the plan to take him up to Kansas City by rail are known to many people in Kansas City, especially the Kansas City Police Department. This story is literally on the AP wires soon after the agents and their prisoner get on the train to Kansas City. Although the report reporter does make a mistake about the shotguns, saying the men are armed with rifles. On the night of June 16th and into the morning of the 17th, 1933, phone lines are humming in Hot Springs, Fort Smith, Joplin, Chicago, and Kansas City. In Hot Springs, locals arrange for Francis and Danella to fly up to Joplin, Missouri. The plan is for them to meet Nash in Joplin at his usual hideout after he escapes from custody in Kansas City. That will be several hours' drive from Kansas City. A close associate of Frank Nash named Vernon C. Miller, who is living in Kansas City at the time, agrees to mastermind the escape. Not long after midnight, he is already casing Union Station. In 1935, the Daily Oklahoman will write of Miller, quote, he had left his home in Huron, South Dakota as a young fellow to become a showman. He had also been a wrestler and boxer, finally to enlist in the United States Army for service on the border. 
His draft card says he served in North Dakota National Guard, followed by an extensive training as a machine gunner in the World War. Then he had gone home, and mainly upon his war record, becoming first a policeman and then elected sheriff, only to be caught in the embezzlement and sentenced to prison. Now he was quite a personage in his quiet way. He had alignments with the Chicago mob and was well tied in with like mobs in Cleveland, Jersey City, and New York. Beyond this were his other accomplishments. His presence was always welcomed in a bank robbery. A machine gun in his hands meant disaster to any avenging posse. Unquote. In June 1933, Vern and his girlfriend, Vivian Matthias Gibson, known as Vi, and her daughter Betty, are living as a family in Kansas City. Quote, The Vern Millers were truly settled in Kansas City. They had taken a nice house at 6612 Edgevale Road in an excellent neighborhood. Listeners, it's still a very nice area, not that far from Mission Hills, which is the ritzy part of town for old money in Kansas City. The home is still there. The Zillow estimate of its value is $300,000. Vi has her child with her. The little girl was taking dancing lessons and doing very well. Vi belonged to one country club, where she often played bridge. Vern belonged to another country club. End quote. They socialize often with their associates in crime. In fact, it's at the Miller house where Frank Nash plots to free his friends from Leavenworth. It's also said that some of the escaped convicts were actually arrested playing golf with Miller in Kansas City. He was able to calmly walk away and blend in with other golfers. Reportedly, Vern's plan is to get the drop on the lawman holding Nash by using machine guns to intimidate them. After all, he has lots of experience using a machine gun to terrify robbery victims. It's rare for anyone, even armed law enforcement personnel, to refuse to put their hands down when faced with machine guns. He looks around for a couple of experienced gunners to help him. According to the official FBI account of the massacre, famed bank robber Charlie Pretty Boy Floyd and his sidekick Adam Rochetti fill the bill and agree to be Miller's accomplices at Union Station. Pretty Boy Floyd is a big name in outlaw history. In 1933, he is on the run for robbery and murder. Floyd is one of those outlaws who is a hero to some people. He has another nickname, the Robin Hood of Oklahoma. He's also a stone-cold killer. 
He is currently wanted for the murder of a Kansas City lawman, Curtis C. Burks, an agent of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF. Those agents are casually known as dry agents. Floyd shot Burks during a raid in 1931 on the Lusco Noto Flower Shop at 1039 Independence Avenue in Kansas City. If you know Kansas City, that's up in the River Market area. The flower shop was a front for organized crime in Kansas and Missouri and a hideout for Floyd and other outlaws. Agent Burks left a wife and two-month-old son. Adam Rochetti is another case altogether. He's not pretty at all or admired by anybody. His only redeeming feature is that he is completely loyal to Pretty Boy. Looking at his picture, he reminds me of Robert England, the actor who plays Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But let's just say England is much handsomer than Rochetti. Are Floyd and Rochetti really the other gunmen at Union Station on the tragic morning of June 17, 1933? Officially, that's what the FBI says. It is well documented that Floyd and Rochetti are hiding out in Kansas City at the time. Personally, I don't think they would think twice about doing the job, even if it meant shooting a dozen lawmen. But whether they were up, they were the ones at Union Station that night is up for debate. This is the official account of the Union Station Massacre, from the FBI website. By the way, they call it the Kansas City Massacre, but in, in the Kansas area, it's more commonly known as the Union Station Massacre. Early the next morning, June 17, 1933, Miller, Floyd, and Rochetti drove to the Union Railway Station in a Chevrolet sedan. There they took up their positions to await the arrival of Nash and his captors. Upon the arrival of the train in Kansas City, Agent Lackey went to the loading platform, leaving Smith, Reed, and Nash in a stateroom of the train. On the platform, he was met by special agent in charge, Vetterly, who was accompanied by FBI agent R.J. Caffrey and officers W.J. Grooms and Frank Hermanson, of the Kansas City Police Department. These men surveyed the area surrounding the platform and saw nothing that aroused their suspicion. Special Agent in Charge Vetterly advised Agent Lackey that he and Caffrey had brought two cars to Union Station and that the cars were parked immediately outside. Agent Lackey then returned to the train and, accompanied by Chief Reed, Special Agent in Charge Federally, Agents Caffrey and Smith, and Officers Hermanson and Grooms proceeded from the train through the lobby of Union Station. At the time, both Agent Lackey and Chief Reed were armed with shotguns. 
Other officers carried pistols. Frank Nash walked through Union Station with the above-mentioned seven officers. Upon leaving Union Station, the lawmen with their captive paused briefly. Again, seeing nothing that aroused their suspicion, they proceeded to Caffrey's Chevrolet. Frank Nash was handcuffed throughout the trip from the train to the Chevrolet, which is parked directly in front of the eastern entrance of Union Station. Agent Caffrey unlocked the right door of the Chevrolet. When the door was opened, Nash started to get into the back seat. However, Agent Lackey told Nash to get into the front seat of the car. Lackey then climbed into the back of the car directly behind the driver's seat. Agent Smith sat beside him in the center of the back, and Chief Reed sat beside Smith in the right rear seat. At this point, Agent Caffrey walked around the car to get into the driver's seat through the left door. Special Agent in Charge Vetterly stood with Officers Hermanson and Grooms at the right side near the front of the car. A green Plymouth was parked about six feet away on the right side of Agent Caffrey's car. Looking in the direction of this Plymouth, Agent Lackey saw two men run from behind a car. He noticed that both men were armed. At least one of them had a machine gun. Before Agent Lackey had a chance to warn his fellow officers, one of the gunmen shouted, Up! Up! At this instant, Agent Smith, who was in the middle of the back seat, also saw a man with a machine gun to the right of the Plymouth. Special Agent in Charge Vetterly, who was standing at the right front of the Chevrolet, turned just in time to hear a voice command, Let him have it. At this point, from a distance approximately 15 feet diagonally to the right of Agent Caffrey's Chevrolet, an individual crouched behind the radiator of another car opened fire. Officers Grooms and Hermanson immediately fell to the ground. They were dead. Special Agent in Charge Vetterly, who was standing beside Officer Grooms and Hermanson, was shot in the left arm and dropped to the ground as he attempted to scramble to the left side of the car to join Agent Caffrey, who had not yet entered the driver's seat of the Chevrolet Special Agent in Charge Vetterly saw Caffrey fall to the ground. He had been fatally wounded in the head. Inside the car, Frank Nash and Chief Reed were killed by bullets from the hoodlums' guns. Agents Lackey and Smith were able to survive the massacre by falling forward in the back seat of the Chevrolet. Lackey was struck and seriously wounded by three bullets. Smith was unscathed. The three gunmen rushed to the lawman's car and looked inside. One of them was heard to shout, They're all dead. Let's get out of here. With that, they raced, raced toward a dark-colored Chevrolet. 
Just then, a Kansas City policeman emerged from Union Station and began firing in the direction of one of the killers, later identified as Floyd, who slumped briefly but continued to run. The killers entered the car, which sped westward out of the parking lot and disappeared. The three survivors, Agent Smith Lackey and Special Agent in Charge Vetterly, reported that the assault lasted possibly 30 seconds. They were uncertain if three or four gunmen staged the assault. From their account, it was apparent that the two Kansas City police officers were killed immediately, followed seconds later by Frank Nash and Chief Reed, and then by Agent Caffrey, who was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead on arrival. The massacre takes place about 7.20 a.m. on Saturday morning at a train station. Hundreds of travelers are there. A policeman on duty at the station ran out and saw the gunman fleeing and took a few shots at them. Witnesses would say that they thought one of the, bank guy, the bad guys was hit on the way to the getaway car. Unfortunately, Hundreds of other people also poured out of the building to see what was going on, so the scene was not secured at all. The photograph that you see most, um, the one on the FBI website, was taken seconds after the murders by a newspaper photographer. You see people standing behind and between and in front of the agents' cars all around them. The bodies of the two policemen are right there in the picture. I can make out two heads near the front of the front wheel um, and a hand. Unger reports that the head near the curb is Hermanson with grooms his head on his chest. So there are people walking around all over the place, stepping in the blood, certainly moving things, even picking up souvenirs. Plus, two victims are alive, so they get taken to the hospital, which is good, of course, but that does disturb the crime scene. The public outrage over this massacre is huge. And J. Edgar Hoover fans the flames of anger. He is already talking to legislators about expanding the FBI's powers. As Unger says, quote, Hoover's relentless message to a fearful, worried citizenry was simple, clear, and reassuring. Give me the tools, and I'll do the job for you. But it all hung on the Union Station massacre case. Union Station was the symbol, the challenge, and the mutual focal point of America's impotent fear and gangland's ruthless power. And Hoover knew it. Unquote. Hoover makes a promise to America. Those who participated in this cold-blooded murder 
will be hunted down. Sooner or later, the penalty which is their due will be paid. As to the crime sequence of events, the investigators rely mainly on the testimony of the surviving agents Smith, Lackey, and Vetterly, because the scene of the crime is so compromised. There are a few witnesses whose reliability may or may not be the best. So the agents depend a lot on phone records to determine the identities of the perpetrators. Quickly, they make the connection from Hot Springs to Joplin, where Francis was waiting for Nash. You'd think it wouldn't be hard to then look at the outgoing calls from Joplin to Kansas City and make the connection to Vern Miller's place. That will finally happen, but not for a few days, and Vern and Vi and Betty have fled. An interesting find is made in the house, bloody rags, as if a wounded man had been nursed there for a while. As for who Miller's accomplices are, there are plenty of suspects. Just for starters, all the convicts Frank helped escape from Lansing a few weeks ago, they are all still out there, and they know that the powers of hell are about to come down on whoever was involved in the Union Station Massacre. They put together a letter stating that they were over 300 miles away from Kansas City committing a bank robbery at the time of the massacre. They even put all their fingerprints labeled on the letter to validate their identities. I'm really not sure who they thought that was going to impress. The investigators go through the Miller house for evidence. If only they knew about DNA back then, they could have used the bloody rags. And they have an expert looking at a few pieces of ballistics evidence found at the scene. But so far, there's nothing to connect anybody to the crime except Vern Miller. Ultimately, all the escapees from Lansing will either be captured or killed. However, no case can be made against any of them by the FBI with respect to the Union Station Massacre. The investigators essentially spin their wheels working on the case for over a year. In the meantime, one hope, that of capturing Miller and hopefully getting him to tell all, is dashed when his body is found in a ditch by passing motorists. He has been beaten to death with a claw hammer. I'm thinking some mob justice there for bringing so much heat down on organized crime. There's a very disturbing close-up of him 
on the autopsy table posted on the internet if you're interested. In the spring of 1934, the powers of the FBI are extended dramatically and signed into law, cementing most of what the Bureau's mission is today. Congress gives the FBI jurisdiction over pretty much any crime that goes across state lines, as well as bank robbery, kidnapping, and assaulting a federal officer. In addition, agents are empowered to make arrests, serve warrants, and carry and use firearms. Hoover is very happy about this, but it sticks in his craw that the Union Station Massacre is still unresolved. It will take the timely discovery of a fingerprint and the story of a terrified mobster to do that. When that happens, Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Reschetti will receive Hoover's justice. In the 1930s, the entire political and administrative apparatus of Kansas City, Missouri, and probably Kansas, including the police force, is controlled by boss Tom Pendergast. Organized crime led by mob boss Johnny Lazio is separate, but intertwined with the Pendergast machine. The two groups work well together to keep Kansas City corrupt and teeming with vice. In reality, Kansas City is a wide open town. In 1934, one James Jimmy Needles La Capra and associates decide to muscle in on Lazio's action. Johnny Lazio is assassinated in July 1934. Johnny's supporters blame La Capra and his buddies. When one of his friends is wounded, taken to a hospital, and then disappears in the company of two Kansas City policemen, La Capra and his henchmen all take off. By August, La Capra is so scared, he starts talking to the FBI down in Wichita, asking for protection from the mob and the police. His story cracks the massacre case wide open. Allegedly. Friday night, the 16th of June, 1933, an associate of Lazio's called to ask for permission to hide from Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Reschetti at one of his safe houses. According to La Capra, he continues, Late that same night, Vern Miller called Johnny Lazio to ask for permission to pick up Nash when he got to Kansas City, as well as recommendations on guys who could assist. 
Lazio okays the job, but wouldn't give Miller any of his boys to help. Instead, he put Vern in touch with pretty boy Floyd. And voila! The FBI has two targets, Floyd and Rachetti, to chase to the ends of the earth. And voila again! An FBI fingerprint expert conveniently discovers that a fingerprint on a beer bottle found at the Vern Miller house belongs to Adam Rachetti. Floyd and Rachetti have been hiding out with their girlfriends. They spend a while in Chicago and Buffalo, New York, before deciding to return to Oklahoma. On the way back, their car skids into a tree near Wellsville, Ohio. The girls go to town to get a tow truck. Floyd and Rachetti stay there, but are spotted and get into a gun battle with local police, but they escape separately on foot. Rachetti is captured immediately. After that, the FBI is called in, and this is what happens. According to the FBI, eight of the participants in this search, a squad of four FBI agents led by Melvin Purvis, along with a squad of four East Liverpool, Ohio police officers, headed by Chief of Police Hugh McDermott, were jointly patrolling a group of roads south of Clarkson, Ohio, in two cars on October 22nd, where in 1935, when they noticed an automobile move from behind a corn crib on a farm. The officers had been questioning all persons whom they saw, and in an effort to question the occupants of this automobile, they stopped their cars. At this point, the vehicle that had attracted their attention drove back to its original position behind the corn crib, and a man whom the officers immediately recognized as Floyd jumped from the car with a 45 caliber automatic pistol in his right hand. As the officers reached Floyd, he said, I'm done for. You've hit me twice. They took the pistol from his hand and also seized a second gun that he carried in his belt. Then two FBI agents left to summon an ambulance to take Floyd to a hospital. They were accompanied by a local citizen who had witnessed the encounter. Two other local citizens, including the owner of the farm where the shooting took place, also were witnesses to the action that had occurred. Floyd died about 15 minutes after he was shot. Listeners, I don't care much about Pretty Boy and Adam Rachetti, but I do care that four decent men and one really bad man lost their lives in a brutal hail of gunfire on a bright Saturday morning in 1933. I want to know what really happened. However, 
I've talked too long. This episode is already at an hour, so I need to make this case a two-part episode. I'll talk about what really happened in the next part. I've posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. (laughs) 